This is Mate, a podcast about marketing, advertising, technology, and entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey, and I'm a digital strategist and entrepreneur. This is episode number 10, my second show recorded in the United States, just a few blocks down from Times Square in New York City. So, to set the scene, you'll hear some horns beeping, some sirens wailing, and things like that. It is the true New York City hustle. Today, I'm speaking with Bob Knorp, who is one of the most intelligent marketing professionals I've had the privilege of meeting. We talk about what is a brand, how to kill it with content marketing, and what the future holds with cognitive advertising. And Bob even sets me straight a few times throughout this interview. So make sure you're paying attention because we jump straight into the good stuff from the very first question. So let's go and talk to him. Who are you and what do you do? Well, I'm Bob Norp. I'm a consultant and a podcaster. I basically work with people to help them understand their brands a little bit better. I help people solve big marketing problems. Uh, I connect people to each other uh, for better opportunities in the marketplace. And I have taken all that experience, years and years of experience working in the marketing world and applied it to a show called The Beancast, which is a weekly marketing podcast that deals with the latest trends and issues in marketing, kind of like meet the press for the ad industry. Mm-hmm. Wow, you've got your bio down pat, I love it. <laughs> is that like a standard bio you use? Or? Yeah, that's kind of the way I, um, I, I pitch myself. I mean, you know, everybody needs to understand who they are in an elevator pitch. Yeah. And if they don't understand who they are in an elevator pitch, they're just not doing it right. Yeah. And I think a lot of companies can't really boil down what they do in a, a few simple phrases, that makes it for a, a lot of confusion in the marketplace. Um, you know, it's just like it doesn't matter that your car does all this really, really cool stuff. If you can't boil down what the car is to the consumer in a few short, sharp sentences, yeah. you're not doing it right. Yeah. Especially in the startup world. The startup world, they're so caught up in the specifics of what their product does without really understanding who they are as a company and what their mission is. Yeah. Um, you know, it's one thing to say that we're trying to connect a whole bunch of people for a dating app, okay? It's another thing to say what exactly we're, what, what kind of space we're filling in the marketplace mm-hmm. as far as the spectrum of dating apps. Yeah. And give people that understanding of what is this going to do for me? I always tell my students at NYU, that's another thing I do, I teach at NYU um, a semester, uh, one class a semester on strategy and execution. And I always say, you know, it is, a brand is not what you say to people in your marketing communications. A brand is how you do business. A brand is your identity. It's, it's you know, if you go back to what a brand is, a brand was something that seared the mark of, 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 of a rancher into the flesh of cattle. <laughs> Yeah. And it's, you know, if you're not doing that, if you're not doing that metaphorically with your brand, you're not getting across the message in any kind of impactful way. <laughs> it, it's a, that's a nice mental image. So you think we should be uh, searing um, our, our brand's logos or our client's logos into the minds of consumers? No, I, I don't think that we should be searing um, the, the logo. I think that gets off track a lot of times. A lot of people think that the brand is the logo and yeah. I hear so many people say, well, this is our brand and they give me graphic standards and I'm like, that's not your brand. Yeah, like your I- brand is what? Your brand is the experience of the consumer 
with your product or with your service. Mm. You know, that is your brand. Your brand is built up through experience after experience after experience. And, you know, ultimately the logo is just a reminder of an experience that you had. One of my favorite things to do in my NYU class, because I teach a lot of foreign nationals, so I have a lot of Chinese students in my class, and I'll show a picture of the Pillsbury Doughboy, and I'm not sure if you know who the Pillsbury Doughboy is. I know what it, what it is, I don't really know what it represents though. Right, exactly, because you're Australian. Yeah. You have no experience with the fact that the Pillsbury Doughboy represents mom cooking crescent rolls and cooking baked goods for Thanksgiving or Christmas. Right. Um, this is an experience that has built up over years. I mean, the whole reason the Doughboy was created was because mom used to make little Doughboys out of dough in the 1800s, uh -huh. and with the leftover dough, they'd cook it and the kids would play with it. Uh -huh. And it was a reminder of that family experience. Um, you know, the, the, the Doughboy in and of itself is not a representative logo that can communicate anything. It, all it does is remind people of the experience of eating Pillsbury products. Yeah. So the so the the logo, the color scheme, the the brand typefaces, all those kind of um, I guess artifacts uh, are just a way to like visually represent a brand. And a well, brand. it's it's a reminder. I yeah. mean, there is no doubt in my mind that brand advertising works, and it works really well. But it works for big companies, big companies that have established experience. Like yeah. McDonald's, if McDonald's stops advertising on television, they see double-digit percentage drops in same-store sales right. over the course of a month. That, that means that advertising is working, but it's only working in so much as people have had the experience with the brand, they know what to expect, and you see this commercial and you're like, yeah, I haven't had McDonald's in a couple of weeks, I'd like to go to the store. Or, yeah. Wow, they've got a special on this particular sandwich. I, it's one of my favorites. I want to go. But it's a reminder of an experience. It's not an effective way to create awareness in and of itself. Yeah. Like, who's doing this well, then? Because I see a lot of companies doing it really badly and, like, not knowing who they well, are. Well, everybody and... always uses the example of Apple. Um, people talk yeah. about Zappos. People mm -hmm. talk about Amazon. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the reason that they talk about those brands is because they've created a great experience and their brand represents that experience. Yeah. Apple is all about simplicity in computing. It's, you know, it's about a different way to compute, simplicity. And everything about their design, everything about their customer service, everything about the way that they um, deliver their products, everything is designed around that simplicity metaphor. Even the logo is a reminder of simplicity. They've simplified that logo over years. Yeah. Amazon, it's the same thing. You can get anything. You know, it, it is a re representative of easy online shopping. Yeah. Even their logo, if you notice, has the smile yeah. from A to Z. Yeah. You know, it's just like you can get anything in Amazon from A to Z. Yeah. And it's, you know, these types of brand exercises work really well because they've been built up over years of experience with the product. Yeah. So, and, and this reminds me a lot of um, what Seth Godin writes about. He talks about, you know, being remarkable. And remarkable is, you know, something that uh, somebody would remark on, you know, in, in its essence. And he talks about, um, instead of trying to, like, fool customers into thinking that your brand is great through some clever marketing scheme or or ad or whatever, uh, he says, just make your product amazing and then uh, the, the brand kind of looks after itself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of people 
waste their money on marketing when they really need to be putting more money into research and development and product development and product design and product experience and yeah. customer experience. I mean, you know, you need to shore up what the product is doing in the hands of your consumers before your brand can, you know, catch fire. Mm -hmm. um, you need advocates who are out there going, this is amazing, you need to try this. Yeah. Um, it doesn't mean that's the only way. I mean, there's a lot of people with word of mouth marketing and social media who are saying, that's the way to do it, we gotta do it that way. No, you need to have a mix of communication messages. Yeah. But at the same time, just creating a great idea for an ad does not bring people to your product. What it does is it might incite a little bit of trial, and if they're not having an amazing experience with the product, they're never gonna come back. Yeah, yeah you, you need both. You need, uh, you need something to tell and something to talk about as well. Like, <laughs> it needs to be good at its essence, otherwise, like you said, people won't return. And I mean, some people are saddled with problems like commodity products. I mean, there's no way you're going to say my salt is better than your salt. You know, you can you can go on and on about how this salt was, you know, sourced in the uh, you know, somewhere in East Asia. You know, you can yeah. you can talk about all these different ways that your salt has been procured and why it's more expensive and why it's more valuable. But essentially, you're selling salt, and and that becomes problematic. I mean, that means your experience needs to be not so much about the product, but about all the experiences of using the product, of the packaging, of the way that it's presented. Um, yeah. The, there are ways that there are things that are outside the control of the marketer in terms of dealing with commodity products. But if you have any ability to affect the way your product is perceived and to enhance that experience with the product, then you're on a winning path. Yeah. And it's interesting that you use salt as an example there. I heard uh, uh, an example recently. There was like this uh, Himalayan rock salt. And it was like, you know, packaged by like monks somewhere in the Himalayas and like, you know, it's obviously super expensive compared to, to regular salt, but really it contains the, the same chemical makeup. Like it's, what is it, sodium chloride, I think, uh, is the, the chemical makeup. But like it, it's salt, right? Like there's nothing well, I mean, special I, I've about got that a, I've got an even better example, which is it's just like anybody who's selling a commodity product and shows a sexy woman in a bikini is basically using... Um, borrowed interest. So essentially, <laughs> you know, you're taking sex and you're selling something else. You're taking the experience of sex and you're promising sex and uh -huh. you're saying that if you use this product, you will have sex. Well, the <laughs> same thing is true with this Himalayan salt. I mean, they're going after a specific market that is enamored with Eastern cultures and is, you know, maybe has maybe yoga practicers or somebody who's doing <laughs> Tai Chi or yeah. something, you know? Yeah. You're going after that type of person and you're giving them a, an affinity to that type of experience. But essentially, it's still frickin' salt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, to the, to, to contrary to popular belief, like, the, the yoga people who buy the Himalayan rock salt for double the price of the store salt, um, maybe they get double the value out of it because they, they tie the Himalayan rock salt to their identity and, and they like, they feel good about that purchase and it, and you know, it makes them feel more. I agree. I don't, know. don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying this is a bad strategy to, on their part. I'm just saying that borrowed interest is a powerful thing, but it's also not yours. 
anybody can come in and say, we got even better monks. Yeah. Anybody can come <laughs> in and say, we've got a sexier girl in a sexier bikini. Uh -huh. You know, when you're using borrowed interest, it's not ownable. What it is, is it's a, it's a strategy based on um, a, appealing to affinity interest. It's not about appealing to the core interest of why your salt product is better than the other salt product. So, that, that leads to an interesting conclusion, like how do you make something ownable? How do you make something ownable? Boy, that's, I mean, well, it depends. Like, but, it's like, a, but what is ownable then? Like, because I, I could argue that, uh, like, Coke's brand positioning, I suppose, is open happiness. It's all about, you know, summertime and, and, and trying to inspire, like, people to be happy and, and together and that kind of thing. But, like, that's not, like, they can't really own happiness. But they can, own, they can own the experience customers have with your product. And it's just like understanding what that core experience is that customers are having with the product and understanding your historical perspective of what your product has meant in the cultural phenomenon. And, you know, working through those truths, those basic truths, and coming out with a message that makes sense. Excuse me, I've got my phone turned on, which is like the most amateurish thing that I've ever... <laughs> I thought you were a, a radio professional bum. <laughs> well, we're sitting here on a roof at a, on my building, so <laughs> how professional could I possibly be? With the New York uh, roadworks and, and, and traffic in the background. Yeah, but I mean, you know, finding out those core truths and then, you know, connecting back to those core truths about what the product experience means in the hands of your consumer is essential. Um, with Coke, I mean, let's face it, Coke was originally um, a cocaine-based derivative product that was sold by shyster uh, you know, salespeople who were posing as medical doctors saying that this will uplift you. Mm -hmm. And it, it's always been a sugar-based, caffeine-based, and a one-time cocaine-based product <laughs> that was all designed to lift up the spirits of the people it had. And there's affected. a brand experience. And the brand experience <laughs> with Coke is essentially, I feel happier when I drink it. Uh -huh. I drink it and I feel better. I'm more energized. Um, these types of basic truths, and because they were the first to do this, you know, come out in their brand identity. Mm -hmm. I mean, their brand identity is we create happy moments. Yep. And that makes sense. I mean, it makes sense for the product. It, now, is the concept completely ownable? No, it's not. But they do so over time, not only with experience, but by pushing forward constantly with messaging mm -hmm. that says, we were the first, we're the best, we're the the one place where you can open happiness, which yeah. is not even their brand anymore. Now it's something real, something, whatever. Is it? Right, yeah. Yeah, God knows. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing, right? Like, you can never own anything, so you need to keep reinventing it and keep, uh, and keep reinforcing it as well. Like, uh, Well, and the that's, that's the real purpose of brand advertising. Brand advertising is about reinforcement. It's not about creating new awareness. Um, you know, and I know that's a controversial statement because there are certain moments when someone sees a product out enough that they go, I should try that. Mm -hmm. um, that does happen. But it's really about reinforcement of brand experience and advocacy. So let's, let's uh, you've touched on a few things there that I just kind of want to um, unpack a little bit. Um, and for those listeners that are maybe not super... Um, 
uh, verse, well versed on on uh, marketing and advertising. What's the difference between brand advertising and direct response? Well, I mean, direct response is about measurability. So, I mean, it's it's essentially we have a goal that we need to reach, an objective, a very specific numeric objective, and we live and die by the response that we generate. So it's much more promotional-based, and it's much more about making sure that we get people to actively try the product, buy the product, or in other, in other words, engage with the product. No matter what we're doing, yeah. we we're, we're specifically have a goal and a number that we need to reach. Brand advertising is more about the general awareness of the product and making sure that people understand that we are here, that we are available, and it's, it's, it's creating a mass understanding of who we are as yep. a company or as a product. Um, the objectives of brand advertising are not numerically based. I mean, we can say that they are. We can say that the buzz rating's up and that you know we reach so many eyeballs with this yeah. ad. But essentially, it's not numerically based. It's mainly about the feeling and the, the general sentiment that we're mm. creating in the marketplace for the product. For other initiatives to find root, like the direct response. Yeah, yeah. So, so to kind of sum that up, direct response is uh, action-oriented, measured by you know sales figures, I suppose, and, and will manifest itself in things like um, advertising with price points, um, you know, sales, coupons, those kinds of things. You want people to act. Whereas brand advertising is about um, generating awareness um, or some sort of a, I guess, uh, psychological um, result. And it's it's measured by I suppose um, brand awareness and and kind of like you said those reach figures and those more like nebulous numbers and uh, and I guess the objective there is we're trying to change people's attitudes towards the brand so it manifests itself in advertising that um, has you know some sort of a uh, like it'll it'll be an ad with with like a kind of a strap line on the end of it. It's trying to it's trying to tell like the brand story rather than a product story. Well, yeah. I mean, that's a, you're you're getting the heart of it. I mean, essentially, direct response is measurable action, and brand awareness is about the feeling that we have about the brand, reinforcing the feeling and the experiences we have with the brand. Um, and to take that one step further, I am a firm believer that we. No matter how many different medias come into play, we do three things in marketing. We either brand, we do direct response, or we do public relations. We're either creating awareness and reinforcing awareness. We're um, doing uh, direct selling. We're removing product in some way, direct response. Or we're managing the message. We're managing what the impression is out in the... Uh, marketplace about what we're saying and doing, etc. So we have three initiatives. Every other thing that we do in marketing is a media choice. So there is no such thing as digital marketing or social media marketing. Um, what there is is uh, a media choice saying that we're either going to do branding, direct response, or, or or public relations via the media choice that we've chosen. These media choices have rules. Um, but it doesn't mean that social media is all about PR. It doesn't mean that digital marketing is all about direct response. I mean, these are just you know, media choices that we can execute any of the three uh, core initiatives of marketing across. Yeah, yeah. 
So I want to ask a bit of a, a controversial question. Which, which of those is more important for a brand? You know, first of all, I don't believe that any of them are more important than any other. But, <laughs> I mean, I think it, it's, it's a tripod. I mean, there, there's a yeah. reason there's three. You take one leg away, and the stool's not going to stand. Mm -hmm. But, however, I will say that the, meat and the mix that you're creating among the three initiatives varies based on what the objective of the brand is, what the marketplace reality is, who you are as a company, what the life stage of your company yeah, is. Yeah, how mature it is. I mean, yeah. like a, a, a brand new startup wants to do a lot more public relations and direct response than McDonald's does. Mm. Because McDonald's just needs to run commercials, a lot of ads, um, to get awareness to keep sales moving. I mean, they they need to do direct response, they need to do public relations, but the predominance of their spend should be in general awareness. Yep. Um, so, uh, to answer your question more succinctly, uh, you know, the mix of these, these different initiatives just simply changes over time based on what the marketplace realities are. Yeah. So, you said that McDonald's needs to maintain brand awareness. Like, isn't McDonald's one of the most um, widely recognized brands in the world? Why do they need to keep reminding us that they're there? If McDonald's were to stop advertising for an entire year, people would forget about them. They would see them on the street and they would understand that there's still a presence. And quite frankly, their biggest brand initiative is the fact that they are on every street in America. Yeah. <laughs> but taking out the big TV and radio and, and print and digital buys and taking all that away, all that awareness away, would make us less likely to go to McDonald's. It's just a, a, a fact of life because there are so many competing messages for our attention. Yeah. The only way that a brand like McDonald's could stop advertising completely is if Burger King, Taco Bell, Arby's, Kentucky Fried Chicken, all the rest of them just decided that we're not going to advertise anymore. Yeah. And then it wouldn't be an issue because the choice would be being made via other methods. But, right. you know, so, until that happens, you need to compete on that scale. Now, I mean, for a new startup, yeah, the best course of action for a startup would be to compete. Like if, if I want to do Bob's Fried Chicken, the best thing for me to do is buy the Super Bowl ad. But I can't afford the Super Bowl ad. So I need to invest more heavily on experience with my product and experience in my store and experience with what this product means to my consumers and then build up enough audience and enough sales so that I can start to compete at that level. Yeah, okay. Has anyone tried this before, like just turning off marketing for a couple of months to see what happened? Pepsi. Pepsi tried to do that whole stupid the thing. Super Bowl thing, right? A couple of years the, ago. Yeah, the, we're not going to be in the Super Bowl. <laughs> we're going to do this whole thing about I mean, people voting for their favorite causes and everything, and they experienced monumental drop in sales. Yeah. It was an unmitigated disaster. You talked about this on your show, yeah, I remember. Um, all right, cool. Well, that, that's kind of a nice segue. I wanted to um, also talk about some of your background because you've got some great opinions about marketing and branding and, uh, and, and you're obviously very knowledgeable on those topics. How did you kind of get to where you are today? Like, what, 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 what's your career trajectory been like, I suppose? 
Oh man, so completely stupid the way I approach my career. <laughs> um, I have no formal marketing training in, in, at all. I did really? not go to school for it. I did not get involved with it in any way other than I started off as a radio salesman. Um, I loved radio. I wanted to be involved with radio in some capacity. Unfortunately, when I got involved with radio, I realized that this is the bottom rung of the entertainment industry and there is no reason to pursue any kind of career in the radio business. <laughs> I mean, as much as I love it, and I still love it, and I do a podcast because I love audio so much, radio was just a, a wasteland of people who were not making any money and had no career trajectory. My favorite story <laughs> is the news director who was a 65-year-old man in my radio station and was making $18,000 a year said, I need a raise, and he was so mad one day and he marched into the, into the, uh, the general manager's office and slammed the door and he was in there for an hour and he comes out after an hour all smiles and we ask him did you get your raise and he said no but now I'm a notary public <laughs> so he basically the guy made him a notary a guy who signs and stamps official documents and this guy was happy with that <laughs> I mean that was my first warning sign that I need to get out of this business but um, <laughs> so I took that experience of selling ads and writing ad copy and and getting involved with the sales side of radio and parlayed that into some agency work doing local market television commercials and parlayed that into a direct response career working in the direct marketing industry and I started off as a copywriter I moved up into being a creative director but all along because I had that direct response experience in doing database marketing I was very interested in the strategy and I took over a lot of the strategic development that was going on for a lot of the uh, brands that we were working with over the years with the different agencies I was part of. And when I got out on my own, I decided that I did not want to be a creative anymore, that it was way too subjective, that part of the business, that I wanted to be guiding brands into better decision making. Yep. And I had that experience of doing it with some of the biggest brands over the years, so I said, let's just go ahead and do that. And it, as part of that initiative, I started the podcast. Mm -hmm. um, so I got out on my own in 2007. By 2008, I had the podcast going. The whole point of my podcast was simply to get smart people together for a conversation so that I could sharpen my own sword and understand the issues a little bit more succinctly and maybe share this podcast with my clients and prospective clients as a way to generate new business. Yeah. As it turns out, those 50 listeners have now turned into quite a few thousand listeners uh -huh. and it's become a business unto itself. And yeah. Today, um, I continue to do strategy work, but my main focus is helping companies to understand their big problems and to uh, essentially guide them through management consulting into operationalizing their brand as, a, as an imperative for how we do business. Yeah. Um, and the podcast continues to go along. I continue to teach at NYU now, um, teach strategy and execution, which is heavily ironic that I'm teaching a master's degree class and I don't even have an undergrad degree <laughs> in any kind of marketing. But I guess that's what real world experience brings you. Yeah, yeah. So you kind of, now you're kind of doing a mishmash of lots of different things. You, you teach, you do consulting, you, uh, you run the podcast. Like, how do you, how do you manage it all? How do you make all those pieces fit? Uh, I've never found that difficult, so I don't even know how to answer that question. Right. I mean, it's people think that it's, it takes a lot to do those things, but I've always been 
uh, very adept at coming up with pipelines for how to keep my work flowing and my workflow going in a smooth and orderly fashion. So I have a lot of free time. Mm. Um, and, you know, I'm a busy guy, I do a lot of things, but I'm, I have a lot of free time. And I think part of that is because I believe wholeheartedly in a, in a complete work-life blend. There is not a nine to five day period that I work, um, and there is not this sacrosanct, I'm not gonna work time period that I set aside. Mm -hmm. I just make sure that I have good life-work balance, and I, I play that game in that fashion. So that might mean you work in the evenings, but do something, you know, you go, go on a day trip during the day, or, you know, like the weekends you might do things, but. I have a lot of freedom, let's just put it yeah. that way. I have a freedom to make those decisions, and I, I enjoy my life very much. So for people who want to, want to be in that situation, because I, I feel like that's starting to be a bit of an emerging trend, like people, particularly among uh, millennials who are starting to kind of shirk the system. I mean, I'm, I'm one of them. I'm the perfect example of that. I quit my agency job and said, you know, I, I'm sick of this system. Um, I want to create a life where I have the freedom to choose when I work, where I work, and how I work. Um, and whether that's all the time or whether I want to you know, have this work-life blend like you're talking about. Well, I mean, it's a decision that you have to make based on how you want to live your life because it is not a financially lucrative way to live your life. Mm -hmm. I mean, having that much freedom. I mean, I, I totally believe that if you're career-oriented and you want to have a lot of money and you want to be successful in business, you need to either start something and hire people and bring in and make a company that's going to keep you very, very busy. Um, or you need to go and take a high-paying job or a great position at a great agency or a great uh, client and basically work your ass off in that process. Yep. Um, but, you know, for me, you know, I like to have a lot of free time and I, I, I believe wholeheartedly that you go around this trip once, so mm -hmm. let's have a little fun along the way. I mean, yeah. me being financially secure is less important than me being happy. Now, the two interlock at a certain point, yep. but um, yeah, one, one is more important to me and I think being happy is more important to me. So, you said that you didn't um, have any formal marketing training um, or, or any formal marketing uh, study, I suppose. Out of the people that I know and, and the people that produce marketing-focused media, I suppose, uh, much in the way that your podcast does, you're probably one of the more knowledgeable of, of that kind of group. I wanted to, to kind of explore, like, where did you acquire that skill set? Like, how did you, is it all, like, I mean, you kind of alluded to it before, um, you just, like, picked it up on the job, but, you know, did, is there a particular process you went through to, um, to kind of study this, this, this field, or is there um, particular people that you learned off, or? I think the biggest challenge for marketers is to stop what they're doing and pay attention to what's going on around them. So we all have this proclivity to want to just stand up on stage and tell everybody what we think, instead of taking the time to listen to what other people think. And that's what my podcast brought to me. I mean, my podcast is not about the opportunity for me to say to you as an audience what I believe. My podcast is, a, is just a collection of the smartest people I can find yeah. 
talking about the latest trends and issues that I'm researching every single week. I mean, I'm reading the news. I'm going to meetings with interesting people. I'm uh, listening to what people have to say on an ongoing basis. I'm finding what is uh, the big movement, what the big movements are in marketing at any given time. And I'm, I'm learning and growing through that. My podcast, the main purpose of it is to make me smarter. Um, that is the main purpose of it. And I bring along an audience of hundreds of thousand people who are learning right along with me. Yeah. So let's talk about the podcast a little bit. It's called The Beancast. Firstly, where, where did the name come from? Well, my consultancy was the Cool Beans Group. And... At the time when I was starting the podcast, I was not thinking about trying to make this into a big thing. Mm-hmm. I just wanted it to be a companion audio program for my, my, my consultancy. Yep. So I called it the Beancast. Now, in hindsight, stupid, stupid move. <laughs> it's, it's become very unique, and it's definitely identifiable, and I'm identified with those beans, and um, I, I feel good about my logo now, but it was a long, hard slog to make it what it is today, by not calling it the marketing podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just by calling it the marketing. Like, if I had a client who wanted to call it, well, we want to do, you know, we sell lawn chairs, so we want to do um, the wood show, you know what I mean? Or it's, or even worse, you know, like the, the, um, the, the sunshine show, you know? <laughs> because their logo was a sunshine, you yeah. know, the sun or something like that. I would tell them they're stupid. You yeah. know, you need to be the lawn chair podcast. Yeah. You need to specifically bring out what you're talking about in the name of the show to get audience. Uh-huh. I chose that name and I stuck with it and I've lived with it for long enough that I really can't change it now. So that's, sure. that's why the name is. And you've built up uh, many years of brand experience with uh, your air quotes here customers or listeners and, and you've you know, you've been able to build that brand, I suppose. Like it, it is quite a well-known, um, quite a well-known show in the industry. I believe that it is, yeah. I believe that a lot of people know about it. I mean, it's funny, there are so many podcasts out there and so many choices that it, it, it's really hard to make everybody aware of my show. I mean, I've always felt like if I could get 11,000 people listening to an episode, I was doing exceedingly well. Yeah. And that's the decision I made when I did episode one, when I had 20 people listening. Yeah. You know, I, I just... We got a we got a siren here coming. <laughs> this is classic New York City, though, right? <laughs> this is for for those of you listening. We are sitting in the bright sunshine on a grassy rooftop deck in Midtown Manhattan. <laughs> it could not be a more glorious place to do a podcast. Yeah. So you guys are all lucky to hear all this noise in the background. <laughs> Except for the fact that this is an audio show and none of those things that you just described translate except for the noisy uh, ambience of, uh, of the Manhattan... Oh, believe in the power of radio. <laughs> I have just made this rooftop deck more beautiful than anybody could possibly imagine. Because they're sitting there, they're adding in their own experiences with rooftop decks and they're imagining the most amazing rooftop deck that they have ever seen with a sweeping view of the Hudson... Cranes everywhere. It is a nice view. It is. It's, it's, it a, is. it's a great view. I don't think you need to talk it up. Like it is, <laughs> it, it is pretty good. <laughs> now, if you, if you were to actually be here and see it, it would not be as amazing as you're probably imagining now as you're listening to the show. So, <laughs> uh, so the show. 
it's kind of like a, a panel style discussion, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, and and you kind of just like run through the the week's um, biggest marketing stories with some of the indus- the industry's biggest experts. And you, you spoke to it before. You're not really even. Um, I guess a huge participant in that discussion in in, in the sense of you're not giving a lot of your I'm opinions. Not the star, I'm not the star of the show. Yeah. I mean, I'll give my opinions, but I'm not the star of the show. And quite frankly, one of the things that people make mistakes with when they're doing a panel in a conference or a panel show is they try to make sure that they look good in that process. And I don't want to look bad any more than anybody else, but I do take contrary opinions that aren't necessarily mine so -hmm. that I can spark debate over the subject. I think, you know, being able to control and shape the conversation is more important than actually participating in the conversation because I'm trying to get them to talk. I'm trying to make them shine. I'm trying to make all the panelists who are having, are are participating in this conversation the star of the show. Mm -hmm. And you're never going to do that if you take the opportunity to make sure that your opinion is 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 part of that discussion every single point yeah and and we spoke about this the other day you said that you kind of found this weird um this weird niche this skill that you have of being able to conduct this sort of a conversation yeah you know i i I always feel reticent to say things like this to somebody who's actually interviewing me (laughs) But I think that interviewing is the easiest thing that you can do for a podcast. It, it is, because you go put together questions, you ask questions, it's call and response. Now, you're exceedingly good at this because you're having a conversation with me. So we're, we're, we're doing a lot better than most sure. interview podcasts. Are you just saying that because I'm here? No, or? I'm not just saying that. I mean, we're having a good conversation. So this is, this is really uh, outstanding. But... Um, when you add in a second voice or a third voice or a fourth voice and you have them all debating and discussing, understanding how to shape that conversation and get them talking to each other and stopping them when they're on a, a, on a big tirade and, and reframing the question and reframing the answer so that the audience is brought along and can understand where things are going yeah. and to you know, stop people in their tracks or to challenge their opinions. And, you know, all of that is part of the the panel discussion format of most TV news programs. Yet, I thought it was something really easy to do, but apparently it's not. It's one of mm-hmm. the hardest things to do, to shape a conversation as opposed to just interviewing somebody. Yeah. And, um... I think most panels you see, the reason that panels are so unpopular at conferences is because most moderators are just asking questions. They're essentially conducting an interview of four people instead of creating a conversation, a debate, a controversy on stage. Yep, I think that's fair. So in a way, you've kind of made a bit of a career out of podcasting. I have, I have, a surprising career. I mean. It's not, a, it's not necessarily a profitable career, but it's, <laughs> it's something that has become part of my identity, part of my brand, and yeah. I, I believe it does add value and connections to the, the core business of consulting. There's, there's a part of that that will uh, generate some consulting work, and then you've also been doing some work helping other companies to set up their own podcasts. I have been, I have been. I'm not at liberty to say who, but I've been doing some... <laughs> 
consulting with both startups and uh, big, you know, well-known international brands to help them start up uh, both external and internal podcasts. Mm -hmm. And you know, I think that the general consensus. Well, let's face it. I mean, a lot of people were on the podcasting bandwagon because of the whole ser serial phenomenon. Serial mm -hmm. came out, and everybody thought podcasting was cool. Everybody wants a podcast. It's kind of that moment when the first website came out, and everybody yeah. needed a website. But I think that the smarter players who I'm working with, um, they understand that podcasting is an opportunity for them to communicate their ideas in a much more palatable uh, multitasking way. It's, it's a way to get your information across to your, you know, employees or to your customers uh, in, a, in a less obtrusive way. I mean, if someone can listen to your audio while they're driving, while they're running, as opposed to having to lock themselves at a computer desktop and you know, scroll through your white paper, mm -hmm. well, that's that that's going to bring you know buckets of advantages to the consumer, or I'm sorry, buckets of advantages to the brand that's participating in it. Yeah. And it's also not interruptive as well, like a lot of advertising is. So you're not putting billboards in people's faces or putting ads on, on a YouTube video when someone's trying to do something else. Well, that's the whole beauty of content marketing, is it's basically a pull strategy. Yeah. I mean, you know, you do push to tr attract attention to your content, and the content pulls the customer in, and the customer engages with your content, and hopefully then the flow starts going in the other direction. Yeah. So this is not something that was on the run sheet, but I do want to ask you about branded podcasts. Um, you know, we're starting to see some of those pop up here and there, and, and you've been involved in producing some of them. Um, but, like, is, is this something that is going to be successful? Like, what, what, what can a brand talk about on a podcast beyond can, just their product? No, it, it can be successful. Um, if it's done, if you have a, a really interesting customer-focused niche and that you're trying to explore. Like Campbell's Soup, if they were to do a consumer podcast, they would uh, want to be doing something based on what people do with their products, not with the products themselves. So it's not about soup, or it's not about a product that they're making, it's about recipes and cooking and, and wellness and mm -hmm. you know those subjects subjects that are interesting to the consumer and that bring brand affinity and understand podcasting is just part of a larger content play I mean you know, the, the thing people don't understand about content is content does not replace advertising it's not like you're going to do content and you're going to get the same response that you get from your advertising but what you are doing is you're building up a database of ways and of resources for your consumer to access and have deeper engagement with you. You're also building up um, a juggernaut uh, of SEO goodness yeah. because essentially your search engine optimization can pull on the transcripts of podcasts and mm -hmm. pull on the white papers and pull on this huge breadth and depth of knowledge that makes you an authority on a subject and that uh, authority then gives you better Google rankings, gives yep. you better Bing rankings. Yeah. Um, so content marketing, this is, this is kind of a, a bit of a, I wouldn't call it a buzzword anymore, but it is a very hot topic in marketing at the moment. 
And one of the, the big challenges I think a lot of brands have with content marketing is they produce content, but they have no way to propagate it and to get people uh, interested in reading or watching or listening to it. How do you think, or how would you recommend brands um, not only produce content, because it could be great content, right? But people need to be able to find it. So do you need to buy ad space to, pro- like it just kind of defeats the whole point of Yeah, I mean, it. it's kind of have a, it's a, the only, there is a two-step element to content that bothers me. I mean, when you, we understand that the more steps we have to put between the buyer and the product, the less likely we are to get that sale. Mm. So it's better to have an ad for the product that's very compelling that gets people to respond and gets them buying the product. That's the best way to do it. Um, However, some products are very, very complicated and have a long runway of engagement that needs to be overcome before the product is sold. Cars, for instance. Um, You need to build up an ongoing relationship with that consumer with depth of content, both fun content of showing the car going through its paces and on a wild stunt track yeah. to uh, white papers and brochures and everything else about information that you know sells the benefits of the car. Um, you need to build up a whole bunch of resources on these topics so that you have searchability, so that when people go looking for a car, your car is ranking to the top of their specific needs. Um, You know, content marketing is not an ad replacement. Content marketing is only a way to kind of fill in that gap that digital marketing has produced. So what what is that gap? Well, the gap is that there is... the, The gap is that there is an infinite number of opportunities on the digital spectrum to create ad impressions, to create brand impressions, to create experiences for the product. And the more that universe expands, the more that advertisers are going out there and creating deeper and and longer and more fruitful content. So it's become a necessity for any brand to compete to have a depth of content or else they're just going to get buried under the avalanche of their competitors. Mm. I mean, it, it's kind of like it's kind of like detente when you think about it. I mean, it's kind of like we have our nuclear arsenals that we're building up against each other mm-hmm. and we're never going to use those weapons, but we need to have those weapons in order to assure our own security. <laughs> and that's what content marketing is really about. Yeah. You know, If you're not participating in content marketing, you're essentially going to get blown up by Russia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See, that's that's the power of uh, audio sto- storytelling, right? And being able to create that imagery. So, moving on to, to the, the final couple of questions. Um, the first one I wanted to ask is, what's really exciting you about this field right now? Or just like in general, like, you know, under the topics of marketing, advertising, technology, entrepreneurship, what's exciting you right now? The thing that I'm most excited about, but also terrified about, so I'll say that in the same breath, is cognitive advertising. That's what IBM has coined the phrase, cognitive advertising, and they're using it with their Watson initiative. Mm -hmm. I have always believed that the next most right thing that marketers need to do is to do personalized mass awareness. That if I can run an ad that is different for every single customer that meets their specific 
needs predictively in every single situation, but is still at mass scale, that's the holy grail of marketing for me. For when you become, when you, when you truly transform advertising and marketing into a service business, mm -hmm. this is part of us servicing our customers. It's not just about one message fits all across the entire spectrum. That's when marketing gets really interesting. And I think cognitive advertising is our first step in that direction. Now, of course, meet our new overlords, the computer <laughs> AI. I mean, it's, it's a scary time to understand. But I mean, my personal belief in terms of AI is that we're not looking at a, a, a Terminator future or a Matrix future. What we're looking at is more of a, a, a her future where the computers get bored with us and they move on to bigger and better things. Yeah. I mean, that's a much more logical conclusion to the whole AI question. Because, mm. I mean, why would they even... I mean, if an AI is smarter than us and stronger than us, why do they even want to bother with us? I mean, what purpose do we even serve to them? Yeah, I think that's a fair opinion. And just a little cheeky plug, there's a whole episode of Mate on Artificial Intelligence, uh, episode number one. So, so cognitive advertising, does that mean... We're strapping like uh, little wires and stuff to our head while we watch TV ads. And no, what it is is there's so we're leaving a trail of breadcrumbs of data points. We in the in a digital in, sense. No, in in the digital sense, but also in the analog sense, and we're being measured by CCTV everywhere uh. we go. We're being measured by every credit card transaction that we make. We're being measured by the kind of programming that we're watching. I mean, there's so many little data points that are out there, and as much as the analytics professionals would like to say that we can figure this out and we can give you better targeting, they're never gonna be as intuitively smart and on target as, a, as an artificial intelligence that can crunch so many numbers beyond our human intelligence to yeah. arrive at decisions we would never see without the help mm -hmm. of these computers. So cognitive advertising is more taking this avalanche of data that's coming in from so many different sources and, and making sense of it all predictively in ways that are smart for a marketer to use. Um, why do they call it cognitive advertising then? I would have thought that's like behavioral advertising. Well, cognitive advertising is that it's a consciousness. You know, Watson is essentially what they're saying is a consciousness yeah. that is making decisions for the advertiser. It's, it's, and it's, it's not just saying all this is true, so we will do this. It's saying all this is true, but we have to understand these nuances of yeah. perspective, and we have to understand that um, this may not be the right time to do it, because right now there's a war going on, and we don't want to have this message. I mean, uh, something that is intelligently not only predicting the, 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 the best possible approach, but understands the perspective and the context in which it's arriving and can make those smarter type decisions. Yeah. That's why it's cognitive, it's not mm -hmm. behavioral. I'm gonna throw this one in here. What's, what's really pissing you off right now? It's grinding your gears. What's pissing me off? Oh my God. <laughs> Um, can I say politics? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that one's probably fair. I mean, politics really getting me upset right now, but um, yeah, I don't know. When it comes to the marketing world, not a lot gets me pissed off anymore because I just think that 
most of it is just plain ignorant. Most of the marketing that's being done is just plain stupid. And it, it doesn't piss me off, it just leaves me shaking my head yeah. and going, well, more fodder for the AdFell 5, you know? Yeah. Like <laughs> I, can, I can bring out another list uh, for next week. But yeah. nothing really pisses me off. I guess if, I had to, if, I, if you really press me on the point, I'd say the thing that pisses me off are the, are the, the evangelists for certain marketing techniques. Mm -hmm. You know, when you get the word of mouth experts who believe that there is nothing else but word of mouth, mm -hmm. or you get the social media experts who are going, social media is all you need to do, or the people who say you don't need to advertise mm -hmm. because, you know, we're, we're in a post-advertising future. I mean, that gets me irritated because it's just plain ignorant. It doesn't pay attention to the facts about how this all works. It's all, and it's an ink, interconnected ecosystem that needs to be well tended in order to have any kind of effect. Mm. And all those people are very self-interested too, so. Well, yeah, it's just like, <laughs> you, you always, of course if you, you dig, the social, if social you dig media. deep enough, you find that there is a dollar sign that's <laughs> driving them, so yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, as with anything. Um, cool, and, and then the final question, Bob, is who should I interview next? Who should you interview next? If you can get an interview with Mitch Joel, I would be impressed if you could interview Mitch Joel. Okay. He will, he will not only be your toughest interview subject, but he will put you on the spot because uh -huh. he is one of the smartest people I know. I would love to see you challenge yourself and try to get an interview with Mitch. Mitch has got a great podcast as well. Like it, he does. Very similar style to this show, I think, but probably a few echelons above uh, where I'm at at the he's, moment. He's, he's tough. He, he's really good. He, he will press you on points yep. that you, you're not expecting. Okay. All right. I'll see if I can make that happen. <laughs> well, good luck. <laughs> well, Bob, thanks for coming on the show today. Well, thank this you for having me. This was heaps of fun. Yeah, this, is, this has been wonderful, so appreciate it. And have a good trip through America. I will. I will. Wonderful. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Mate. Now, firstly, I want to thank the very knowledgeable Bob Norb. His podcast is called The Beancast. And if you like Mate, I strongly recommend you go and check that out. Editing and mixing for today's show was by Josh Armour from Armour Pod Productions. Thanks for accommodating all of my endless edits. The Mate logo is by Courtney Carmen and music is by Nine Inch Nails used under a Creative Commons license. Show notes for today can be found at matepodcast.com slash the number 10. And we are on all the social medias. Just follow at matepodcast. I like high fives. I think you do too. If you want to give me a virtual high five, please leave an iTunes review. It actually helps a great deal. Um, and I want to thank these people who have done so recently, Carly Marie and Dave Gertler. This was Mate Podcast and it was recorded in New York, USA, but as always, and as pointed out in Carly Marie's iTunes review, it was made with love in my hometown, Melbourne, Australia. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey, and this was a Jaffrey product. Bye for now. Josh Armour from Armour Pod Productions. Thank you for accommodating all my endless edit. Yeah. <laughs> this is exactly one of them.